Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. This week, artist Brian Tilbrook joins me. He recently turned 85 and has lived here since 1965. His main career was as an art teacher, but Brian has also gone from project to project, designing theatre sets, painting murals, illustrating books and even a matchbox, alongside his paintings. Previously, he's talked to me about his theatre sets for City Hall. This week, he also tells me about working for the less-than-savoury George Tan of the Carrion Group, which went bankrupt in the early 1980s amid a scandal of murder and alleged suicide. But first, we go to the late 1970s when Brian Tilbrook produced the stage set for the Hong Kong Repertory Theatre's production of Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. Puerto Rico my heart's devotion Let it sink back in the ocean <laughs> Always the hurricanes blowing Always the population growing And the money owing The chance to work for the Cantonese theatre came up. I suppose you could argue I had enough on my plate with the different local companies, Garrison Players, Stage Club, Hong Kong Singers. But there was the Hong Kong Repertory Company, which was a professional company operating entirely in Cantonese. And would I be prepared to do some design work for them? And the first show was one I'd always wanted to do, in Cantonese or English, West Side Story. And um, I shifted the whole thing to Hong Kong. We created the atmosphere of Hong Kong street and lots of billboarding with Chinese posters and things on, lots of scaffolding. And a crucial bit of it for me was that there was rubbish, lots of rubbish, around the stage, just to make the whole place look like Hong Kong as it was back in the 60s. No real concern for tidiness or cleanliness. And every day I went back to see how things had progressed, the whole stage was empty. All the rubbish had disappeared. And it took me about three days to realise that the staff of the City Hall Theatre uh, were instructed to keep everything clean. So even though this was part of the set, <laughs> the rubbish was removed. So we had a bit of, bit of a sort out there and um, the show opened and was um, uh, a great success for you know, the Cantonese Theatre because... I don't know, they, they just put so much enthusiasm and, and effort into it. So West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein, the, the successful musical that's set with the American gang warfare, really, mm. the sharks and the jets. So how was that transposed into Hong Kong? Well, they became triads. Most shows are fairly easily grafted onto the complexity of Hong Kong because that's the nature of, of this city. It can cope with just about anything, really. And how did you imagine it? I mean, did you sort of... I mean, you knew the musical. Did you Did you then say, right, OK, I'm just going to recreate what they did in America in a Hong Kong setting? Well, I, I, I certainly asked um, them if they were happy to shift the whole plot to Hong Kong. And was it done in Cantonese? And it was done entirely in Cantonese. And thereafter, along with all the other... So is it, we want to live in Yao Mate? <laughs> Um, I, I can't actually remember the lyrics, but you've just passed your audition and um, you're in.
it, it was the beginning of a long association with them, and I had the chance to work with all sorts of uh, directors brought in from outside. They had their own resident Cantonese directors, but they didn't hesitate, for example, with Brecht's Threepenny Opera, to bring out a German director from Hamburg. So I was working with him. And this was which uh, theatre company? Oh, it's still the Hong Kong Repertory Theatre. You know, they're, they're still going strong, bless them. And I just did so many plays that interested me. It was a chance to do Michael Frayn's amazing farce, Noises Off, which, as a set design, has so many entrances and exits. So what's it about? I, when people say that, I usually say about two hours. But it's, <laughs> it, it's obviously about everything going wrong, as all farces are. You start with the Act One where you are watching a, a show being rehearsed. And, in fact, the first line is a guy standing up in the front row of the city hall saying, Stop! Let's do that again. And <laughs> so you get the, the first act as seen from the audience of the farce. The second act is round the back. The whole set had to swing round, revolve so that you were backstage watching all the mayhem from the actor's point of view. And finally, in the third act, the two things are brought together in the opening night when whatever's gone wrong in the first and second act, in the third act, it just disintegrates. And I've never known audiences laugh so much. I've designed the show for both the... Hong Kong rep for Hong Kong University and for uh, an English production. So I, I know it fairly well, but great fun. And with Bertolt Brecht's Thrapeny Opera, how did you set the stage for that? Did you, you know, I mean, are you given a really wide remit? Um, are you allowed to sort of set it in any era? Mostly you, you start off with y your own ideas and only when the little model has been made and a uh, director and everyone else can see what you're thinking, do they then reassert, as they should, of course, what they're thinking? It's not easy to, uh, with a, a play like the Thrupney Opera, to say, I want this, this and this. In fact, the German director said, you can put anything you like in it, but I want total disorganisation. I want every bit of the stage... Um, even the floor. I, I said, you know, in terms of the floor, can I put footprints over it? Yes, he said, go ahead, cover it with footprints. And um, it, it was it was a mess. It was an organised mess. And into that was grafted the actual show. <laughs> came to Hong Kong in 1965 you were first employed here because of your artistic talents well no my, my employment here what brought in the bread 
was um, teaching art in the service school out in, uh, in Kowloon. Then in 1980 I moved to the English Schools Foundation and it's, it's teaching which has been the, the basis for everything and all this business of designing murals and stage designs and, and all the fun that uh, Hong Kong offers is grafted over the top of that. Not to forget, of course, that Maureen and I were um, trying very hard to bring up three small children. So you could say that we were pretty busy. So tell me about those models. How big would they have been? Are they made out of paper, balsa wood? Um, balsa wood, cardboard, half an inch. I ne- I've never gone metric. Half an inch <laughs> to, um, to a foot. And uh, the great thing about them was that they gave both the cast and the director an exact copy of what the real set was going to be like. And thus the director in particular could plan how to use the set, um, entrances and exits and all that stuff. Interesting. So would you class yourself as quite a patient person to create that? No, I'm quite the reverse, in fact. I I can't wait to get things done. And and perhaps that's not a bad thing. I I don't think there's any significance in whether you're fast or slow. But if there's a lot to get through, if you're um, painting a lot, designing a lot, um, then, um, you know, the fact that you're quick... Um, and it can be a help. In the 80s, the, the early 80s, I, I designed the very smallest thing I've ever done. The P&O lines uh, wanted me to, to do some murals. So the shipping? The shipping firm. And uh, I, I, I did those for their office in Hong Kong. And then they said, um, would I please design a matchbox to be issued on board all the liners? So, you know, I designed a matchbox, which was about two inches by... An inch and a half. So you actually had to draw a design or it got printed? Yeah. yeah. Um, it, and what was it? Oh, it, it was a, a sort of um, abstract, but with um, hints of, of um, the Mystic East <laughs> incorporated into it. It went the way of everything else. It was a, a thing that you did and, and then you went on to the next thing. And, and that's how Hong Kong's been for me and, and, and obviously for many people. Uh, in the meantime, of course, I was uh, carrying on all the... Uh, artwork as it was required and one of the more unusual commissions was by a a firm that became quite um, infamous Carrion. I always thought it was a strange name for an organisation because it suggests to me dealing with dead animals and things Carrion. But anyway, The Vultures. The Vultures, yes, exactly. But George Tam was the boss. This would be in the early 80s, late 70s. The crucial thing was that I was producing a new form of, for me, a new form of art, which involved a great deal of spray work, considerable use of gold, shapes and designs which were surrealistic, really. And George Tam was building his headquarters in Central. Huge black marbled interior with gold trimmings. And they just fell upon the sort of paintings that I was producing and they wanted them everywhere. It was the most amazing commission to start with. Three paintings for that room, two paintings for this room, those big corridors, they need pictures. I was furiously at it when they went bust. They overstretched themselves. It was a story, as reported in the papers, that involved murder. A gentleman in Malaysia was rubbed out as part of the devices and goings-on of a strange organisation that set out to cover everything 
from investment in property to running a series of restaurants. I think the restaurants were called Cariana. It all went wrong. There was a suicide involved, which was never actually convincingly portrayed as a suicide. How many people actually attach a large concrete block to their neck and then throw themselves in their own swimming pool? But there was a strange story that came out of that because one of the men who was cleared of any involvement in the swindles that Carrion got up to was John Marshall, their sort of secretary. And John had bought some of my paintings in the same way that Carrion had them in their, their offices, all of which, incidentally, had to be auctioned off at the end, including my artwork. But John Marshall's paintings went with him safely to South America, and he eventually left them to a very good friend of his. And years and years later, out of the blue, I was in Auckland, staying with friends and they said to me I've got a surprise for you tonight Brian I'm going to take you round to a good friend and he wants to show you his flat and we went down the road only about ten minutes away and door opened and I walked into this flat and there on the walls were the three paintings which John Marshall had left his friend originally done at the point when Carrion went bust and uh, I, I felt, what an amazing world it is. So small, all these strange things happening. But with Carrion, I mean, had you already been paid? I'd already been paid. This is early 1980s, mm. and, uh, you know, there was murder involved. It must have been a bit odd to be associated with something like that. Oh, yes. I, I can't say it was a happy time. Um, I couldn't face going to the auction of my artwork along with the silver tea services, the yacht, the Rolls-Royce and all the other things that they had as part of the carrion image. I stayed away, but all the artwork was disposed of. And to this day, many of the panels, I wouldn't have a clue where they are. So did it run in the law courts here for quite some time in terms of and people going to prison? And... George Tam went to prison. There was an interest in the case for a long time because he did employ some very clever lawyers to defend him but in the end the truth came out and he was found guilty I was thinking back over all the years um, with this interview in mind and of course I, I found myself going back to my military links I had already mentioned in a previous interview General Sir, Sir John Archer's wish to have a painting of Flagstaff House. He then left. This is the 1960s, 70s. And uh, when he left, the, the role was taken over by a gentleman called Richard Ward. Now, he was only a major general, uh, not a full general. He was a major general. And he was known as Tricky Dicky. And uh, we ended up having dinner with him, my wife and myself. And uh, I thought he was just being extremely pleasant. And he was. He was a, he was a charming fellow. And we sat in Flagstaff House and he said to me, have you ever thought of doing your paintings in China? And I said, oh, I've tried very hard. I said, I, I actually had an interview um, because I wanted to go into China and do some of the scenes in China. And I was told it was totally out of the question because I could be arrested or framed or... All sorts of awful things could happen to me. So Maureen and I dropped the idea. But there was Richard Ward saying, 
Oh, you want to go into China? I'll fix it for you. No problem. You just tell me when you want to go, how long you want to go for, and I'll take care of it. And I thought, what a nice chap. And then as we were leaving, he ruined it all. He said, oh, apropos going into China, Brian, um, what I would appreciate is when you come back, perhaps we could get together on a, a, a sort of debriefing. You could tell me what you'd seen. what you'd noticed. And I said, y you want me to be a sort of poor man's James Bond? <laughs> and he said, no, no, but I, I, I you know, we, we're very interested to find out anything about China. Anything. So I dropped that idea. You're not, then, the, you're not the James Bond I'm type. I'm not the James Bond type. <laughs> and then the last gentleman I worked with before, and this brings us right up to 19, the 1990s, and the closing of Victoria Barracks. This was handled by a member of the famous Redgrave family. You know, there was Michael Redgrave, Vanessa Redgrave. They, so the um, acting dynasty. The, the acting dynasty. But they had one member of the family who was military, and that was Roy Redgrave. And by this time, he was um, a lieutenant general. Uh, believe it or not, that's still going down. It's the least general that you can be. <laughs> And it was his job to close up Victoria. And he decided to work with me on a, a sort of final history of Victoria Barracks. He did all the writing, and I did the illustrations, and the military provided some photographs. And I also did the colour, uh, the coloured um, uh, cover, a general view of the banyan trees and the old buildings of Victoria Barracks. And when the whole place closed down, and he'd left and they'd all left, Maureen and I wandered round the empty barracks and felt, for the first time, I suppose, a real sense of isolation and even loneliness that the army had gone and uh, the mainland troops had taken over. I mean, the Victoria Barracks, can you describe, was it quite nice architecture and do some of the buildings still exist today? Yes, Hong Kong Park has um, obviously uh, been created by bulldozing down a huge amount of the um, headquarters. But a number of the old buildings have been retained. One has been turned into an excellent craft centre um, with um, exhibitions and gatherings. What you now have is the Flagstaff House as a tea museum. You then have all the beautiful um, layout of water and uh, waterfalls and restaurants and all sorts of things have become so permanent that when I look at it now, I think, was that part of the old Victoria barracks or not? And, of course, it's all been recreated, but with the old buildings uh, as a, a, cr a crucial part of it. And what was the style? What was the architectural style? The army believed in permanence, so you didn't have uh, buildings put up which looked sort of temporary or cheap. And if you want to get an idea of what Victoria Barracks looked like, you've only to go to Stanley, and butting out into the water is one of these 
buildings, which I thought they'd just destroyed. But what they did was to take the building down... So the Murray uh, building. The Murray building, and um, number it piece by piece mm -hmm. and store it away. And then years and years later, they suddenly produced it again. Apparently, when they put it all together, they still had about four pieces left over, three columns and a few bricks, um, which they've made a little um, decorative feature of by the side of the main... But there weren't any holes in the building or a bit shorter than... <laughs> no. And uh, it became, uh, as, as one uh, can now use it, um, as a sort of centre for um, restaurants... And for a long time, the Maritime Museum was there. Uh, if you want to know what old Hong Kong looked like, just go down to Murray. I was going to say, when you came here in 1965, if you look at Central, you'd have still had the Hong Kong Club, Prince's Building, mm. um, the railway station over at Jim Sa Choi. Yes, I had, a, I had a very good friend who um, used to help uh, me by um, building parts of the... Um, the sets for garrison players and Hong Kong singers and, and various other clubs. And I didn't realise until he'd retired that his job, his official job as the head of PWD... Was so, PWD? P, um, Public Works Department. And his job was to knock down all these lovely old buildings, the, the old post office, um, the old prince's building. As Hong Kong changed rapidly... And, uh, so this, this was really early 1980s where yes. a lot it of was, It was going on all the time. Um, and only in the last 20 years would I say that um, people have been concerned about the heritage of Hong Kong and have actually um, stopped knocking old buildings down and have declared them monuments. So you do have the, the, the sort of buildings that I put into the uh, book that the government commissioned um, the Heritage of Hong Kong, that featured about 50 buildings, which included everything from the Hong Kong University, which is still in existence, right the way through to the clock tower in Kowloon, which is all that's left of the old railway station. Did you ever travel from rail out of here? No. I'd been in the station when it existed, but I'd never taken a journey. I, I, I gather that um, it, it was a single track, and it went right through the New Territories, right through Sha Tin, out to the border. And then because there was a change in the railway gauge, um, you got out of the train and got into a Chinese train to continue a journey to Beijing or wherever you were going. Because I understand now, I mean, it's not quite from Chim Tha Choi, but they, they can do... You can do your surface mail, actually, by rail from Beijing to London. I always find something slightly romantic about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But um, you'd have also had, um, back uh, you know, prior to these changes, you'd have had a lot of these. Uh, would, it, would you still have had lots of people coming in by rail? Oh, yes. Yes, the, um, uh, the station was, um, um, was teeming, really. It, um, it was part of the attractions of Hong Kong. And nothing that's replaced all these old buildings, to me, seems um, anywhere near as interesting as, as they were. When you arrived in Hong Kong, you were teaching art. So would you have been sort of teaching how to paint or in different ways or how to draw or um, how to get the perspectives of a portrait or were you saying, here are the great masters? Uh, more more the, the former. Uh, you, you try and give uh, youngsters... Um, as much help 
as possible. But in the end, I, I don't think I was particularly good at the technical side of teaching youngsters. What I did manage to communicate, I think, was an enthusiasm uh, for what they f were doing and, and for, for getting involved in art. So that my idea of a good art lesson was if I ended up with about 28 out of 30 in the class um, producing pictures that I could plaster all around the walls. Um, so I, I treated any school I worked in, I only worked in two schools in Hong Kong, first of all the military school, St George's, and then South Island School for the English Schools Foundation. And in, in South Island, for example, I, I actually started displaying the youngsters' work in the toilets. It struck me that art should be everywhere. So at about five o'clock in the afternoon, my assistant and I would wait until the school was completely empty. And we would then, checking that there was no one still in the toilets, we would go in and we'd take down the pictures in each cubicle that the children had done and put new ones up every four or five weeks. It was my way of getting the school and the, and the children sort of linked in to how much fun it is producing pictures. I always thought that just about everyone could have a picture on display. It wasn't just the best. It was people who'd um, got caught up in the enthusiasm and done something which they at least were quite pleased about. What's your favourite medium? Spray. I use a huge amount of spray now. And, and what do you mean by spray? Well, spray, um, cans of aerosol spray, which are produced by art suppliers, not your, your can of uh, domestic spray that you, you, you might touch up your car with or um, spray the garden ornaments with, but th this is spray designed for artists to use. Um, originally it came from Florence. It took me a, a little while to get used to using it, so that I went out into Hong Kong one day and people were looking at me a little bit but I wasn't quite sure why until I got home and then I discovered that the green spray which I'd been using on a piece of artwork had settled on my white hair and I'd gone around Hong Kong with green hair <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a lovely way of um, getting all sorts of strange effects I, I can use anything from spraying through um, a design of chopsticks to just simply scattering rice all over an area and then letting the, the spray drift across it and create a, um, a, a startling new pattern. And it's that sort of work which has gone into these big murals in places like um, Pacific Place where the whole of the 75 metres of abstract design has been done with a can of spray. My thanks to artist Brian Tilbrook. I'll be joined by Chris B, who's been described by Time magazine as the tattooed fairy godmother of the Hong Kong scene. She talks to me about her career as a singer, losing out on an award to Fei Wong. 
and the hundreds of concerts she's put together as an events organiser in the city. Chris B kicked off with Sisters of Sharon in the early 1990s. The latest band of the bilingual singer and guitarist is called Krang. She talks to me about growing up half Brit, half Chinese, making it as a singer, and the recent hoo-ha about event space and working visas. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Holy.